Bookworm Games, Episode 36, The Problem of the Heart. Faye's exile begins serenely enough to the calm after the storm. You find yourself upon the world map for the first time. Like you could see from Sutan's telescope, little bits of cloud float by, and the music is a chill, breezy rendition of the theme song, sans lyrics. But if you've heard it, you can't help then hearing the chorus of it in your head. The force of life goes on. It's the melody played by the music box, or a variation of it. Leaving these mysteries aside, there isn't far to go at all before the black moon forest. Spooky, dim, wordless. The light here is all shades of green, textures overlapping one another, so it's difficult to know at times where you can go and where is only background art. Exploring the forest introduces most of the elements of platforming, such as they are, running, jumping, balancing, checking things in the environment to trigger a way forward, and maybe most of all, adjusting the camera to see around obstacles. So between battling hobgoblins and rolling rocks, running along fallen trees to avoid being crushed, snagging a few inexplicable treasure chests concealed down blind alleys, Faye comes to his next meeting with fate. Think of it like that giant boulder which stands right in the way and has to be moved, but which can't be stopped once it gets rolling. A futuristic, militaristic-looking woman appears, challenging Fay in a foreign tongue, attempting to hold him at gunpoint. Little does she know, in his current despondency, death would seem a relief. Depression, exedia, melancholia, the furthest thing from that hot anger and passion of the firelit battle. But she, too, is more broken than she is letting on, less in control than she's pretending to be. Faye calls her bluff, and firing a single warning shot, she misses wide in more than one way, sending the opposite message that she's attended, that she can't kill him, even if he might want her to. The further humor of the moment is in how weak such pistols will be, at least those used by the Ave army, dealing minimal damage in battle. What violence means in this context, though, is supposed to still have rather high stakes, given what we've just seen in Lahan. And so, what Ellie's mercy here means, I think, we're supposed to take seriously, too, that she could have killed him, but didn't. It's nothing if not dramatic, and into this flows the musical theme, which has a lilting, halting, flowering quality to it. Some deep understanding flows between them with it. At first, they literally speak different languages. This is Ellie's first mistake. She seems to automatically use her native tongue, but catches herself with a sharp shake of the head and switches to the speech of the region. The invented language of Solaris sounds harsh and foreign, but beyond that, there doesn't seem to be much to it. It connotes the German of the Nazis, 
when taken together with Ellie's rote ideology of shepherds and lambs, picked up a jugend. These get the typographical treatment of gears and Gebler did before, hyphens seemingly standing in for italics for emphasis. But though she parrots the language she has been taught, she does not act on it. She has Faye turn around, as if by veiling or averting their gaze, and that strange spark of recognition that passes between them, she will regain the upper hand. But when he turns to face her anyway, she sees her authority undercut by that much more. In the drawing of Faye's face that accompanies his words here, I think we see the first dejected panel being used, drawing our attention to his face as well. If she spared him at first out of the hope he would be able to help her find the way out of the forest, or if she told herself that was why she didn't shoot him on sight anyway, that excuse no longer serves, as he doesn't know the way himself. They're both literally lost in the dark wood. Perhaps this is part of what Ellie means when she says later that they are the same. But there's something else. When the forest elves, ape-like, quite untolkienish monsters, drop down from the treetops, angered by the pistol shot, and drop Ellie with a sucker punch, Faye belatedly notices the danger and cries out, Keep your hands off Ellie. Somehow he already knows her name. It's a slightly more preternaturally specific form of the same shock of recognition she's had. The recognition of his humanity, which overwhelms her as much as she does try to struggle against it. The scene cuts to that night by the camp's campfire, uh, Ellie finally regaining consciousness. Faye picks up right where they left off, aggressively challenging her to execute him, knowing by now she won't, and bitter about this as well as about her suspicion and ingratitude, since far from taking advantage of her weakness, he has tended her wounds. They exchange names. Faye wonders at his prescience. Ellie mentions that her parents used to call her the name that Faye somehow knew, and they agree to work together since they have no choice. At this point, another cutscene, a dream or flashback, hardly less dramatic than Faye's meeting with Ellie in the dark wood. This time, he is in the desert, the surreal waste of a Dali painting. He is a child, left behind by the procession of hooded figures plodding over the dunes, crying to them not to leave him, but they do. He runs after them, but it is the bootless pursuit of a dream falls down among their footprints in the sand and weeps, but then a shadow shields him from the sun's glare. A hand reaches down, a kind, understanding voice. You must be lonely. The woman wears a cross round her neck with that red jewel at its center. The silhouette of her hair and face look just like Ellie's. The voice, it turns out, it is hers, waking him as he takes her hand in the dream. The fascinating thing about this for me is the intervention of the one who consoles Faye into his nightmare of abandonment, that she should be the very one who threatened his life the day before. One way to interpret the figures, then, 
might be as the dead of Lahang, whom Fay wants to accompany, or at least speak to, to apologize, perhaps. The recurrence of the cross and its association with her this time is fraught with significance. Even stepping back from the Christian concept of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of the God-man, there are the abstract meanings of the image as the axes of time and space, temporality and transcendence. Uh, that word that uh, is used in the union sense as well, when he makes his diagrams and mandalas representing his four functions, feeling, thinking, sensation, and intuition, and where the Cartesian axes meet is the origin, but where the union lines connect is the point of transcendence, the self-individuation or actualization, I don't know quite what terminology is appropriate here, represented by a diamond shape, like the red pendant in Xenogears. We'll certainly want to amplify this further as we go on. But in the light of day, or at least the twilight of the forest, Ellie is anything but a source of solace and comfort. She begins by asking Faye what he meant, analyzing his words, if not his dream. But she balks at telling him how she came to be lost in the forest herself. As he tells his story, just beginning to process what happened, he seizes on the arrival of the squad and the stolen gear, blaming them, them, them not the voice that whispered to him to use the gear, not his decision to disobey Satan's warning. Meanwhile, we see Ellie's memory of that same afternoon leading that very raiding party, which was caught up by the Kislev pursuit and forced to make an emergency landing and brought to bay outside the village. As much as he pushes his guilt onto them, onto her, not Realizing it, who she is, she reproaches Faye with cowardice. Like when she held him at gunpoint before, he calls her bluff almost at once, embracing the insult, the felt memories of violence welling up in place of his amnesia from that night. His hands remember, as they remembered how to paint, and he hears their voices as he heard the music box. Now, in an inversion of his dream, he slumps down, his head in his hands, and rather than try to comfort him, though she hesitates a moment, she walks on, leaving him with the ghosts of Lahan. She comes to a clearing, reproaching herself for her words, and a more complex flashback occurs layering over or interwoven with her replaying the scene just now with Faye, she hears the echoes not of her own experience of that night this time, but of something that happened in the past, it seems, something else that makes them the same. She sees the blood flow over her hands and is interrogated or is interrogating herself and concludes that she is a coward. Now, Faye and Ellie briefly explore the forest together, 
So you get a look at her abilities in battle, her rod-type weapons, her equipment and ether spells, and the sound effects of her attacks versus Faye's. They both sound pretty brutal, though his physical attacks are stronger. Her spells are impressive. Emotionally, they're both going through some heavy self-doubt. Faye does seem to have a death wish, far more noteworthy than any erotic potential between himself and this beautiful, mysterious woman. So caught up in his own troubles, he doesn't seem to notice hers. But the plot forces him to see her physically endangered again and yet again. Between the ape elves and the lizard dragon, the game coerces us into using damsel as a verb and Ellie as the object. Bravely, Faye rushes to her aid, but I can't help feeling like it's a little over the top, this pure knight-errantry. As if that weren't enough, though, Satan arrives, tipping the scales. Faye finds himself in a situation, and it won't be the last, where he must use the gear again. When Ellie comes to this time, it is to find Faye talking things through with a skilled analyst, Satan, who will shortly train his bespectacled gaze onto her. Their remarks about power here provide an important overture to that theme which will continue to play out with the insertion of Graf into the story. So we'll come back to this in the coming weeks. A little more poetry first. Trudging automatically through wrecked hedges, fields churned and fixed as if fired in the belly of some impossible kiln, he found himself wandering on the edge of the woods, lingering where there was one last view of Lahan. Faye came under the trees. The hush and green dimness, the hoots and chitterings made his skin prickle. The air was cool. A trespasser here, an exile from his home, he soon lost his way among the shadows where monsters lurked unseen, then sprang with a sudden rustle for a better hideaway. Faye slew the beast or two that ambushed him, killed them for their meat. He felt sick. Where the dense trees and steep ravines pressed round, some other castaway or bandit had left a chest of goods, screened with camouflage down a defile, blocked the path with a boulder wedged tight. Or was that some natural remnant of catastrophe, or lodged there in the shock of Fay's own? Abstracted, he nearly let it crush him when he'd got the rock at last dislodged. Beyond that dark hollow, a human voice hailed him, harsh syllables whose significance was lost in tone of proud command. Faye saw past the barrel of her gun the one who spoke, held her gaze. She shook her head hard, switched to the surface tone, but he had no weapon to throw down. It still meant nothing to him, only his heart, and he bared it bidding, begging her to shoot, 
if her hands weren't trembling, fire and finish him, as her training furiously demanded, for she was a shepherd of the Abel, and he was a filthy lamb. She held her fire. Was it some parable of her father's, flashing pious and dove-like into her mind, some instinct she couldn't shake for mercy? Turn around, she barked. Lead me out. Don't you know the way? But he wouldn't, only looked at her and seemed to mock her aim, though the bullet flashed just like the last sight of Lahan, whole before the night was lost in burning. Weird and wrong, she stammered, backing away, swung around at a sound and dropped, stunned by a blow that landed like a stone, and through his dejection, Faye sensed the danger. His head and fists and spirit snapped up. Don't hurt Ellie, he heard himself yell. He tore their hands off, blue horny claws patting roughly at the red-brown of her hair, and the forest elves sprang ape-like away, burying their teeth from the branches in a hiss. Faye gathered her up awkwardly, supplicating under his breath that she might still hear. At the base of a tree, he propped her upright, let go, oddly calm now, and prepared a fire to heat water, to clean her wound, and to keep the beasts at bay. By its merry crackle, stars winking in the trees, she came to at last. At once, her hand laid hold of the gun, left waiting by her side. But her soft groan had already alerted Faye, who, looking on, was not alarmed. Her prisoner, her rescuer and binder of her wounds, he sardonically repeated what she winced to have said. Do you still intend to kill me? Then go right ahead. But if not, save it for when we get out of here. The forest dwellers don't like loud noises. They made their pact then to help one another, sealed it with an exchange of names. Somehow, I already knew, he said. Suspicious, grateful, worn out, she slept. Though Faye stared into the fire to stay awake, soon he too drifted off. He dreamed of a desert, a line of hooded figures against a blank horizon, or one figure multiplied many times by some mirage, tramping over the dunes, stretching into the distance like ghosts, like familial descent under the sun. Fay, a child in his dream, wailed for them to wait, slumped down in despair upon the tracks of their feet in the sand when a shadow fell athwart the glare. Her silhouette was succor, her voice an oasis in this gloom. Are you lonely? He reached for her in wonder as her hand reached for his. A red jeweled cross hung bright against her breast. He woke to her, Ellie. Her blue eyes were hard. As they walked on, as her elegant uniform snagged on briars or shrill birds dive-bombed, her ether spells of fire and wind and slashing strikes from her sharp baton set her free once more while he strode on ahead, brooding. At last she asked, 
What brought him here? I might ask you the same. She froze. But then he told. Through the emptiness of that flash of light, bit by bit Faye remembered screams, the hail of bullets and stench of blood, his hands on the controls, bones cracking in his grip. She did too. Her raiding party, trapped by the pursuit from Kislev airspace, shrapnel in her back thruster, a sudden lurch, the ground slamming against her, the body of her co-pilot's blade at the stolen gear's feet. Also, the antiseptic chill of the corridor, her hands on the floor, the blood, her guilt. Coward, had she called him? Ellie was alone. She'd left him, cradling his head in his hands, crouched on the ground, embracing her words like wayward bolts of death, as if he could cram them back into that gear, as if only they hadn't brought it, hadn't fought, hadn't whispered from the open cockpit the swinging cross, and Dan, rescuing his sister's wedding dress from the flames, hated him for what he'd done, for what he couldn't control. He heard her shriek, not Alice, none of those good women all gone, but her, Ellie, whose words, that's right, I'm a coward, had stirred the dragon. He faced it, no longer numb with grief, as it roared to meet him, and left her prone, stomping, miraculously sparing her fallen form. He felt its breath, dodged its snapping teeth and spray of salivating greed. But Faye would not have lasted long but for Satan. The land crab, last perched atop the shed, swooped crashing into the clearing, and like an angular egg, it laid the destroying gear between Fay and his foe. Use it! Doc, I will, but don't want it. If it looks like I'm losing control again, don't let me live. But all was well. The gear responded to his urging and no more. The scaly creature pummeled into peaceability, stumbled dazedly to the depths of the wood. And again they rested in the aftermath, tending wounds visible and invisible in the campfire's glow. Well tall, Doc had called it, dark as the night sky. So it had saved their lives now, Faye and Ellie, from the dragon, and felt for all the world as if it held back its true power patiently waiting. Use it, Satan had ordered, or be used by it, they added. He lay there, back to the blaze, awake. Let's just say I know more than most about the world. Perhaps I talk too much, my wife tells me so, but it's better not to pry. I want to protect Faye. Bad things keep happening around him. I won't tell him your secret. Say only you went to meet your family. I called him a coward, but it was me. Better to go now to your people, who seldom see the surface dwellers that way face to face. 
My father taught me, and my nanny. He hid that she was from the surface. No one knew. Fay has nothing now because of me, and yet what he has is something, some power. We're the same. The same? No, never mind. Well, don't worry. Allow me to handle things. She thanked him, turned away, and soon was lost to sight among the green, dawn just lighting the edges of the leaves. We'll let that be enough poem for now, and pick up with the desert town portion of it next time. Ellie and Sitan's conversation by the gentle crackling of the campfire directly parallels the one between Faye and Ellie the night before. Together with her health and the gear's damage, that's what's occupying Satan's attention. Visually, the repairs he does here, or the attempt, echoes his work on the land crab when we first met him, which puts Faye and Ellie down below in the place of the music box. Her departure is not without certain lingering mysteries, that power she has latent within her, for one. But I think the more immediate question for the player concerns Satan, who knows so much, including the language of the enemy. So who is he, really? Faye, overhearing parts of what passed between them, doesn't ask him, still worried about Ellie. And the military conflict is immediately foregrounded again by the sight of a giant airship flying overhead. Another brief excursion through the overworld map, then we come to the walled town of Dazil, where the goal has suddenly shifted. Before, Satan had told Faye he couldn't, or rather, he could find anonymity among the Ave side. But now, their plan is to repair the gear. It will take Faye some time to fully comprehend the ramifications of this and fully to take responsibility. We'll see more about that again later. Before I let you go, there are a couple interactions here worth mentioning in the desert town. The dynamic trade, excavation, mercenary activity going on here is strikingly contrasted with the passivity of Lahan. But one thing at least is the same, the liveliness of the bar. There's a new foil for Faye here, not young and clean-cut like Timothy, but lumbering, craggy, a little rough around the edges for all his panache, Big Joe. He cows the braggart soldiers, fresh from their raid on a dig site, and for that reason alone he seems sympathetic, considering Faye's experience with such a raiding party from the other side. His dialogue, once you're alone, is colorful too, cynical, boozy, but also strangely wistful, a little reminiscent of the opposites meeting in the drunk who gave you the mermaid's tear, in fact. He could be a different person tomorrow, but he likes to make his presence felt, as Satan remarks. A performer, then, but one writing his own script, doing whatever he pleases. He'll recur throughout the game, more or less conspicuous in his red glam rock outfit, a kind of 
Mephistophelian figure, a sad clown. Which brings us to the ethos workshop. Their symbol, a combination of cross and ram's horns or something, and the translation choice of ethos rather than the literal church, do little to obscure the ecclesiastical nature of this organization. It's there in Faye's initial confusion. Why are they in charge of the excavation? And it becomes more pronounced later, once we meet Billy especially. This treasure-hunting church has a workshop in town and manages the dig sites, as well as the distribution of the relics found there. Given the importance of gears in the war, their power is immense. After the two of them put their heads together about their next moves, Satan, unable to get the parts he needs through the ethos, will do a little digging of his own, heading out in the sand buggy. Fay, for all that he wants to go back and help rebuild, bows to the necessity of moving Veltal further from the village, though where that might be is still unclear. Once the belligerents realize where it is, they're sure to come after it, both Gebler, on behalf of Ave, and Kislev, whose experimental gear it is. Once more, Faye is left alone, but the only thing to do seems to be to follow his friend, who might be in danger out there on his own, according to both the sand buggy shopkeep and Big Joe, who puts it more strongly. Where's your friend? There's a war on in the desert, and he just goes wandering off there. If your friends are important to you, then don't let them get away, especially if it's a lady friend. <laughs> so that's where we'll pick up next time. First, I'll have a conversation episode with AC of the Zeno Study Guides. And if you have time for some light reading, the essay by Jung on uh, poetry might be a good one to start with. I'll try to post a link to that for you. Thanks for listening.